Welcome to a GSA Policy Profile, a GSA On Aging podcast series. GSA Policy Profiles provide insights into current aging-related policy issues from those at the forefront working to develop evidence-based policy. We are grateful to Jazz Pharmaceuticals, formerly Greenwich Pharmaceuticals, for their support of the 2021 GSA publication, Medical Use of Cannabidiol in Older Adults, which was based on a convening of experts in pharmacy, clinical medicine, research, law, and policy. Since 2021, communities of interest have been active in conducting research, producing clinical education, raising awareness of risks and benefits of CBD, and advocating for appropriate federal and state laws. My name is Trish D'Antonio, and I am the Vice President of Policy and Professional Affairs at GSA. The use of cannabis among older adults is increasing in the United States. While cannabis has been suggested to help alleviate chronic symptoms experienced by older adults, its potential adverse effects may lead to unintended consequences, including increased acute healthcare utilization related to its use. I am here today to discuss with panelists what happened in the environment since 2021 in this podcast titled, The State of Medical Use of Cannabidiol in Older Adults in 2023. Joining me today are two individuals who have been engaged on issues associated with cannabidiol for many years. Libby Bainey is a partner at Fagri Drinker and works primarily on policies and issues confronting health stakeholders. She also serves as the Secretariat of the Collaborative for Cannabinoid Science and Safety, whose goal is to foster dialogue and cooperation among a diverse group of stakeholders interested in encouraging scientifically-based research into the therapeutic potential of cannabinoids and ensuring the quality and safety of cannabinoids and cannabinoid-containing products available for consumer use. And joining Libby is Carmen Witzkin, who's an Executive Fellow in Association Leadership and Management with the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, or ASCP. At ASCP, her responsibilities include providing critical insights to the society's government and regulatory affairs portfolios, serving as the primary student liaison and APPE preceptor, and engaging in strategic partnerships through committees and coalitions. So welcome, and thank you for joining us today on our podcast. And I thought, Carmen, I could start with you. Would you explain to us what cannabidiol or CBD is and how it compares to those other terms that our audience may use, such as cannabis, marijuana, medical marijuana, hemp? Can you explain what cannabidiol or CBD is? So cannabidiol or CBD is one of the hundreds of cannabinoids in the cannabis plant. So you've probably heard of THC as well. And that's just an example of another cannabinoid in the cannabis plant. So if we just are talking about CBD or cannabidiol, it's within the cannabis plant and it's one of the many within and it's the plant derived form. So there can be plant derived cannabinoids. There could be endogenous cannabinoids, which are naturally occurring. And there can be synthetic. So just remember um, that CBD is plant derived and it's one of the many compounds in the cannabis plant. So thanks. So now how about when I hear the term marijuana? 
Yeah, so marijuana is a plant that has more than 0.3% THC within the plant. So this is federally controlled substance. So this is um, considered a Schedule 1 by the FDA. So that THC concentration is what differentiates marijuana from cannabis. And then hemp is a cannabis plant that has less than that 0.3% THC. And I know most recently we hear that uh, the term medical marijuana, is that the same? Is it different? It's the same. So it's the same marijuana. However, it is just used for different purposes. So medical marijuana and recreational marijuana are the same product. However, the purpose of medical marijuana is to be to treat disease or alleviate symptoms of disease. And medical marijuana is legal in some states and not in others. So it's important to know which state you're in and if it's in the legal fees there. Right. And if I understand medical marijuana, there's is there's no FDA approved use. For yes. Medical marijuana. Yes. Um, Just state approved use. Yeah. OK. And then when we think about that, I'm just wondering about CBD. This is found in the cannabis plant. How would people find CBD in products? Where would our listeners recognize CBD more? compared to medical marijuana? Yeah, so our patients usually see CBD in stores, often in oils or tinctures, and a lot of the times advertised for pain relief topically. Um, You also might see CBD in gummy form. I know I've seen commercials that advertise those, and they recommend them for sleep, for just general mood boosts. So it's becoming more commercialized, and you don't just have to see them online anymore. You see them mixed in on the stores with all of your other medications in the aisle way. So thanks, Carmen. Libby, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the legal status of CBD and cannabinoids in foods, supplements. Yeah, I'm listening to this conversation thinking about your audience walking through a store finding CBD gummies and not realizing that that's an illegally marketed product. The FDA has acknowledged that there's certainly consumer interest evidenced by what Carmen just said. You know, products are showing up both online and offline with CBD in them. But FDA has maintained that products containing CBD may not be sold in food or dietary supplement formulation. So topical creams, you're not, you know, getting a massage with CBD oil, that's been permitted, but putting CBD in food and in dietary supplement form to, you know, as you said, help with sleep or stress not been permitted by the US FDA. There's details I could go into, but the the short version is current law precludes the use of an article, in this case, the definition of an article will use CBD, in a food or dietary supplement if it was previously approved for use in a prescription drug. Importantly, CBD has been approved for use as a prescription drug. And therefore, FDA has the authority but has not used it to waive what they call the IND bar to allow that otherwise prescription drug to be used in other formulations. FDA has not done that in this case, and therefore the only legal use of CBD is in a prescription drug formulation or otherwise not in a food or dietary supplement. That's because it's, you know, this CBD um, article has been subject to substantial clinical evidence, gone through clinical trials. You know, it's an FDA approved drug. And so because of that, FDA has not used its authority to otherwise allow it to be marketed in foods or supplements. Thank you. And I was wondering if you could comment further on the recently FDA 
determined that that new regulatory pathway for CBD. You know, and we know that that's needed to balance an individual's desire for access to CBD products within regulatory oversight and also to manage risk. Mm-hmm. Right? We want to yep. ensure any product on the market is safe for people, particularly for, for our perspective, for older adults. So I was wondering, can you give us a little bit of an overview of what happened and what might happen next? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's important since this is an update from 2021, Trish, to, to show that there has been a shift. Um, in 2021, when and you came out with the paper, there was an open question as to what FDA was going to do. Would they use the existing regulatory framework that they have in law as a supplement, food, or drug to allow more CBD products to the market? And in January 27th of 2023, um, now two years after that paper, the U.S. FDA announced a new regulatory pathway for CBD is needed that balances individuals' desires for access to CBD products with the regulatory oversight needed to manage risks. And FDA's statement, I think the important words there are a new regulatory pathway. And following that sentence from FDA, they also said they plan to work with Congress to develop this new regulatory pathway, which could look similar to an existing regulatory pathway as a lawyer. I like to think we use precedent as a guide, but importantly, FDA did not say we're going to put CBD and the food framework or in the dietary supplement existing framework, we need a new regulatory pathway. And Carmen, I know that as a member of the Collaborative for Cannabinoid Science and Safety, the collaborative for which I serve as Secretariat, ASCP has been a longstanding member. In response to FDA's actions, I know you and others helped us guide a statement in response. I wonder if you want to just share with the listeners more about that. Yeah. So as part of the coalition, we're one of many members that have a lot of st- at stake here. So we represent consultant pharmacists or senior care pharmacists who work with older adults in all settings. And FOIA is important for our pharmacists and in order to help their patients is they want more research. So when the FDA said that they want to create a new pathway, it just created more confusion for our members. Um, I know I got a lot of emails asking like, what does this mean? Like, do I need to be watching the news and making sure that we're not going to be held liable at our facility for the medical marijuana that we do have in our facility? So I think it just, at the end of the day, created a lot of confusion. And we did put a white paper together ask for specific asks. And from our perspective, the biggest ask is the FDA needs to change the scheduling so that there can be more research done. So if we have more research, then we can show the safety that we need, the efficacy that we need. But the creation of a new pathway, at the end of the day, just caused confusion. Thanks. So Libby, I was wondering if you could follow up a little bit more on the issues of labeling, maybe some of the other issues that were included in the requests in the ask from the collaborative. Yeah. And I appreciate you raising that. I mean, we're concerned. Um, The collaborative expressed concerns about the, you know, about the existing frameworks being sufficient, just as FDA did. Um, The agency called for tools to manage risk, including clearer labels. And, And we can talk about the you know, what is on the product, what is on the label needs to be in the product. And I think FDA signaled some, maybe more than signaled concern with existing regulatory pathway being sufficient to address this particular product category. And I think that's really important. FDA's statement was specific to, are these pathways sufficient for CBD? We know that CBD has clinical efficacy 
as a in the drug approval through the drug approval process, but it also has risks. It means there's toxicity impacts that were identified in the clinical trials, and so FDA's statement points to the fact that if there's going to be CBD in a product, it needs to be clearly addressed in the labeling, and the prevention of contaminants was also addressed in FDA's statement, and concentration limits so that patients don't overdose themselves on a you know, a supplement product that has potentially too high or is a too potent dose of CBD. And that, again, comes out of the clinical evidence that FDA used for the drug approval, recognizing at certain levels there can be toxic effects of even, you know, even commercially available CBD products in a dietary supplement formulation, which is why concentration limits became a, a, is another issue that the collaborative has been focusing on. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Carmen, I was wondering maybe you could comment on this. You know, there was a recent article published in Geriatrics, which showed that the overall rate of emergency department visits in the state of California increased from 20.7 per 100,000 visits in 2005 to 395 per 100,000 emergency department visits in 2019. That represents over an 1,800% increase. A relative increase, mind you, but still, you know, poison centers have seen an increase across the country for people of all ages since 2014. Can you talk about some of the adverse effects of CBD and the impact on our health system? Yeah, definitely. And in that article, that's just for patients 65 and up. So that's important to know that that, that growth is just in a select amount of patients and older adults are, very, are being impacted greatly. So a lot of the symptoms that people are going to are calling poison control centers or going to the ED for are insomnia. They have diarrhea. There's also rash, vomiting, and then infections as well. So these are all symptoms that patients are reporting and are concerned concerning to them, causing the increase. So we also have seen elevated liver enzymes, and that can cause really bad results for patients and lead to emergency department visits because if they already have, if they have medications that affect their liver or already have liver issues, the interactions that are caused with medications that they're using can be very harmful. So that's um, why particularly in older adults, we might be seeing these effects just because older adults typically have more medications and also have maybe vitamins and supplements that they're using. So that adds up. So overall, um, there's just a lot of like inert ingredients in CBD products. And maybe um, since they're over the counter, all other adults may not think that they're harmful, especially if they're labeled as natural products. But they do have effects depending on your medical history and the medications you're taking. So this is just a growing concern across for all use, but especially in older adults. It's very important to talk to your doctors and pharmacists about all of the medications you're using, even if they're the over-the-counter, because there's a lot of adverse effects that are concerning for patients. Thank you. I see that tie back again to Libby, what you were talking about, about the importance of recognizing concentrations and, and labeling that the FDA discusses. And, you know, to that, we've seen several organizations such as the Alzheimer's Association and the American Heart Association issue statements concerning the use and safety um, their use and safety concerns about CBD products. And Libby, I was wondering if you could address some of the safety concerns on the market today. As mentioned, you know, there's only been four cannabinoid-based prescription drugs 
that have been approved by the FDA. One is a plant-derived CBD drug, and three are synthetic THC drug products. And these are available with a prescription from a licensed healthcare provider. Those, as you know, have demonstrated safety and efficacy, and they followed the extensive FDA drug approval process. Since they require prescription, individuals that take them can discuss the effects with their doctor and healthcare professionals. So you get the wraparound benefit of healthcare when you take an FDA-approved drug. Unfortunately, as we've been hearing, there's many products that include any form of cannabinoids. We're focused on CBD for this conversation, but other cannabinoids are also in products that are are marketed and distributed outside of the prescription drug legal pathway. Um, Those products might contain things that are different than what their label says. A study of CBD-containing products conducted by the FDA found that many of these products marketed for consumers contain different levels of CBD than indicated. Again, speaking to FDA's interest in what's on the label needs to be what's in the bottle. Uh, Moreover, nearly half of the products that FDA tested contained THC, despite the THC was not even listed at all. Um, and think, I you know I love my my older American parents, um, but I do not want my mother taking a CBD gummy and I walk in when she's high. And I think that that's really what the FDA has been been identifying is you know you really because of the um, the emergence of this market without the regulatory framework to support it, you really haven't been able to be clear about what's in the product is on the label. And, and FDA has been finding that they've issued many warning letters to companies marketing CBD products. Um, on these same issues. I mean, FDA has been, I think, with limited resources trying to use their agency authority to you know, to go after people making claims about the ability for CBD to prevent things like COVID or other, you know, Alzheimer's. I mean, that you can see the Alzheimer's Association and others raising those concerns because marketers are using the, the hype around CBD to claim any type of cure or treatment. Those plants, I mean, the, the quality, the dosing, the purity, FDA and others have found that CBD products being marketed today have varying levels of quality and dosing and purity. They may come from environments with that are contaminated or create other toxins or poisons in the products as well. And, and I'll leave it at that. It's, you know, it's, as people like to use the term Wild West, it's a little bit like the Wild West right now, which, which again speaks to the FDA's interest in creating a, a new regulatory framework for this type of cannabinoid product. Carmen, were you going to add something? Yeah, I just wanted to add that when Libby mentioned that there was secret THC hidden in some of these products, that's very concerning, especially for patients that have anxiety or have paranoia. That will be something that is really harmful to them and could make their their disease states much worse. So we just I wanted to note that that's something that these these are not safe all the time. Do not consider them safe, and they could have really detrimental effects, especially if THC is hidden in some of these products. Thank you. We really do have to know what we're using when we're purchasing these products off label. And, you know, thinking about that, we also know that private insurance is being lobbied to include CBD products in their coverage. And I was wondering, can you explain, Libby, a little bit about what's happening there? What advocacy strategies are being used that you're hearing of? Yeah, Uh, and I'll sort of differentiate, you know, what we've been talking about, which is prescription drug products and then over-the-counter, you know, medical or dietary supplement products, which may or this is not a cover, those aren't coverage issues. And then now we're going to talk about, you know, mandatory payment issues, which is a whole nother thing to discuss. But I, but briefly, I mean, states, as states move to legalize marijuana, we talked about marijuana, you know, that, that the higher THC concentration for, for recreation or medical use, 
thinking about marijuana in medical context, when doctors are writing prescriptions for medical marijuana, there's been a host of lobbying activities in the states to try to push for mandatory reimbursement for that medical marijuana prescription. The theory being, well, if it's a prescription, it should be covered by insurance. I mean, very simply. Interestingly, though, and I think importantly, you know, medical cannabis and medical marijuana is not being reimbursed by Medicare or Medicaid, you know, federal payers and state payers or, um, or other private health insurances due to its schedule and status. There is some traction that it's trying to be re- mandatory reimbursement in workers' compensation programs, another mandatory payment system for prescription drugs. Providing reimbursement for medical marijuana without having clearly established safety and efficacy for medical treatments really just puts patients at risk and, and creates undue tax burden. I mean, if you're, you're mandatory mandating payment for something that hasn't been clinically proven to be you know, safe and effective for the intended use, that's a slippery slope for doctors being able to write scripts for pretty much anything and perhaps getting you know, a political body to require mandatory payment for that prescription. And I use prescription in quotes because the prescription here is not for something that has been proven as safe and effective by FDA, but has rather been approved by a state for medical use, which is a very two very different things. So we're seeing that as a trend in the states that workers' compensation programs are being um, encouraged and some states are starting to expressly allow, six states are expressly allowing mandatory reimbursement and other states are considering it. We could go down a rabbit hole talking about this, but I think it's really important for your audience to think about the implications of state insurance mandates to require payment for things that are not FDA approved. Right. And and as you mentioned at the top of the question, we could probably have a podcast dedicated just completely to this kind of topic. And it is so important to remember how we use our terms, right? Yeah. talking about CBD, when we're talking about medical marijuana, uh, when we're talking about medical marijuana use and recommendations for that from a, a healthcare provider, what does that, what does that imply? And what's been approved and studied to prove efficacy and prove safety? So there's a community of interest proposing um, regulating these types of products, CBD products, to ensure that all people are safe. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the collaborative's regulatory positions. We we went into it a little bit. And is there anything more that you want to add to that? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Um, the collaborative has been working for a couple years now yeah. um, in response to uh, you know the regulatory changes in this environment. And pleased to have you all involved in, in this discussion, try to create consensus around cannabinoid science and safety. Really important to the, the collaboratives come together about the importance of reducing barriers to research for rescheduling cannabinoid formulations for medical research. It sort of goes to, Carmen, what you've been saying about Schedule 1 versus other schedules. We need to be able to study the product and changing the scheduling would help in that. You know, again, on research, the collaborative has spent time thinking about policies that would drive research and advance the development of cannabinoid-based medications that have been reviewed and approved by the FDA, uh, while still maintaining the FDA's standard review and the high level of quality and efficacy that the agency has been been known for. Also, been th- you know, in thinking about what FDA just said, in need for a new regulatory pathway. What does that new regulatory pathway look like? What are the elements? I'll say elements of success. But if FDA is going to be working with Congress on a potential new CBD pathway. The collaborative has been thinking about establishing a science-based regulatory pathway consistent with FDA's call to action and how those products should be marketed safely as dietary supplements or other cannabinoid-based products. 
this pathway really must direct FDA to establish a national standard for maximum daily serving limits and per package levels for CBD and the total THC. That it gets back to that really important issue of like, do you know how much you're taking? Is it on the label? And do we have a, a sufficient concentration or a low enough concentration limit in the market so it's safe that when consumers take the product, I'll call it over the counter or not under the prescription drug pathway, that they know what they're taking and they're not going to ha- be at high risk for toxicity or other adverse effects that have been proven in the literature. The, the collaborative has also supported the mandatory product listing for dietary supplement products, noting that you know our interests in the collaborative are really for requiring cannabinoid-based products to be listed with the FDA. Thanks, Libby. And Carmen, I want to direct this final question to you before I ask us all to wrap up. What should our audience communicate about cannabidiol with older people, friends and family when they ask? Yeah, I think it's really important to kind of know where the patient is coming from. So that's the first thing. When talking with patients, a lot of times they're having symptoms that they are uncontrollable, that they feel like they want to try anything to try to relieve them. So consider that first before placing judgment. And then when you're talking to them about the CBD products that they're using, outlining if they're having any side effects that are new, outlining like the potential risk there, also linking potential side effects with the medications they're taking. So just really informing the patient that just because it's over the counter, once again, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have side effects and could be potentially harmful. If it does help, that's amazing, but we would prefer that these products are labeled correctly and that are guaranteed safe for our patients. So just letting them know that, you know, this isn't FDA approved. Um, There are risks when taking this medication and we already have medications that you're taking that are approved and have been working for you. So having the patient be able to weigh the, the risk and benefits for themselves and be informed on their decision is just really important. Thank you. So as we wrap up, this has been a quick 30 minutes. As we wrap up, I just thought, Carmen, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to remind our listeners of? Yeah, I think our listeners here are most likely going to be patients, providers, caregivers, all, all backgrounds. But I think what, you know, my call and what I encourage people to do is to look up resources for the developments in CBD science, um, looking for events um, and organizations that you're a part of. And we can provide some um, along with this posting. But it's important for providers to just be aware of CBD and the, its uses. I think that pharmacists and providers in particular, when it's something that's, you know, a little unknown, a little scary, they, they don't want to touch it. They don't want to get met get wrapped into it. And unfortunately, that just doesn't help patients because patients want to get into it. Patients want to find solutions to their symptoms, to their disease states. So just seek out information where you can and ask your organizations that you're a part of to provide that information so that you can provide resources for your patients. Because at the end of the day, they're going to make that decision and they need to have all of the information possible for them. And you're the person that can give that to them. Great. And Libby? uh, what Carmen said, plus remembering you know, sort of the legal status of these products. I mean, as a lawyer, I'm just going to remind us of that. And that's I'm a rule of law person, but the legal status is important for a reason. And, you know, science has not yet borne out how, what, at what concentration products can be used for consumer purposes outside the prescription drug pathway. 
as a healthcare provider and as a, in regulated entities like law and healthcare, it's important that we understand sort of those risks and benefits that Carmen mentioned and, and asking the questions to our patients. Where Are you taking additional products as you always do? Um, are you buying them over the counter? Do you know about the potential risks of, of potentially commercially available CBD mar products marketed with CBD? And thinking about the adverse effects and potential drug or drug supplement interactions. I appreciate you know, GSA's leadership in trying to educate the community on that because it is a complicated topic, but one that has a pretty clear law basis and a pretty clear regulatory basis, at least of right now. And and we'll see where this where Congress takes this work with the agency if there is going to be a, a legal pathway for you know non prescription mark, uh, products marketed with CBD. But as of right now, you know it's buyer beware on the market. Well, I want to thank you both. This is an emerging field. This is something that we have to be mindful of uh, when we're working with our patients. Um, when we're working with older people, um, you know, I think a couple of the things that we advocate for and why we so appreciate being part of the collaborative is that we all recognize the need for the evidence to inform the policy and the evidence to inform practice. So as a reminder, our 2021 publication is up online at geron.org. We will include some of the publications that Libby and Carmen referenced in this podcast on our website as well. Thank you, Libby and Carmen, for joining me on this GSA Policy Profile podcast. And thanks to Jazz Pharmaceutical for your support. And again, thank you for listening to the program. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.